All opinions expressed by the program participants are their own and do not reflect those of Blue Line Futures LLC or their affiliates. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition. Hi, welcome to Macro Corner, presented by Blue Line Futures. I'm your host, Paul Wankmuller. My guest today is Giannis Mindal. The chart book is available in the description of the podcast on bluelinefutures.com, as well as attached to the email sent to clients every Sunday. Not a client? Reach out to info at bluelinefutures.com for a free trial. This is episode five, and the title of today's episode is Emerging Markets and Financial Conditions. A little bit of a quote. Never let a good crisis go to waste. It was spoken by Winston Churchill. Welcome to the show, Giannis. Hey, Paul. Thanks so much for having me back on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about emerging markets and financial conditions, like you just said. I think <laughs> there's a lot to cover again this week, so let's dive right into it. Absolutely. We had a U.S. holiday on Monday. That was the July 4th holiday, but the markets were still open and the rest of the world was still trading. So I, I believe that we're going to start off on slide three, which is going to show the OAS index and the emerging market debt setting. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So on slide number three, we see the Bloomberg EM aggregate total return index unhedged. This is just a basket of emerging market debt securities from governments and corporations. So you can imagine if Brazil issues a bond, that bond is part of that index. If Chile issues a bond, that's part of that index. And even if gotcha. say, a company like Petrobras in Brazil, you Brazilian oil company issues a bond, that's also part of that index. So okay. what we are seeing here in emerging markets, and we briefly touched on that last week, is that we are touching COVID lows basically on those bonds. What's really interesting as we look at things and how investors sort of assess the risk and the return that they demand uh, from those bonds is that the options adjusted spread is not blowing out yet to levels that we saw during COVID, despite the index itself trading near COVID lows. So what okay. is the options, the option adjusted spread, OAS in short, it's mm -hmm. basically a measurement of the spread of a fixed in income security rate. So that would be the EM against the risk-free rate. So one simple way of uh, wrapping your head around this concept is how big of a return do investors demand from emerging markets relative to what the risk, what they can get from the risk-free rate. So the fact that that rate is still trading 300 basis points below COVID highs gives us an indication uh, that despite the index trading near COVID lows, we are not at extreme stress levels as far as uh, the OAS goes. So basically what you're saying is investors are going to want more return on their capital to invest in emerging markets than they previously did based on what's going on in the world today. Exactly. So okay. they make a risk assessment of things. They assess what's currently going on in emerging markets. And we can talk a little bit more of what the liquidity conditions look like in, in the emerging world. But as, exactly what you said, investors 
or basically telling the market, we want the return of the asset to go up before we are willing to step in, gotcha. uh, relatively speaking. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense, right? If, if you're going to, if you think the world is a little bit riskier, especially in the emerging markets, uh, you're going to want to get paid a higher premium for your investment. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. And one additional measure that we didn't directly reference in the slides, but that I sort of came up with over the weekend and uh, was researching on is the liquidity in emerging markets. So what the, do lending conditions look like? How able are emerging markets to get money nominated in US dollars and Euro? So one of the things that we talked about last week was, okay, because emerging markets are taking out a lot of loans and currencies, they don't control, uh, EM is naturally riskier than the developed world and the bond with uh, security would be in the developed world. So the Bank of International Settlements, that's just a central banks of central banks, mm -hmm. puts out a measure of what liquidity conditions look like uh, in Latin America. And what we see there is that those conditions have uh, deteriorated across Latin America. So Argentina is down by 12.5%. Brazil's down. Chile is slightly up because they export a lot of copper. But yeah, we see right. liquidity conditions really uh, come in across the EM. Especially if you're a fund manager that specializes in investing and in, you say you're a U.S. fund manager that invests in other countries, you know, the... The European sector, you know, i.e. Russia, after everything that happened in 2022, you know, all of these countries are probably getting more interest. You know, hey, I, I, I can't invest in Russian debt anymore. Maybe I should be looking at South American debt, like as you were speaking about Chile, Brazil, uh, I, I believe Sri Lanka as well, Norway, etc. You know, th there's there's other avenues for this debt to go because they're not they're not looking at Russia anymore. Yeah, and I think one in, one really important comment to make in relation to fund managers moving capital in between EM places is now that they are increasingly aware of the additional risk that's mm -hmm. embedded in uh, these financial securities because they've just seen what could happen to their money if they lock up in a country that they can't get it out of, they are demanding additional return. That's gotcha. all related back to the OES spread that we talked about in, in the intro of the second. Yep, it's yep. fund managers simply demand a higher percent return for them to commit capital. And so because they have that recency bias still embedded in the investing process, they come in and they tell the market, we want to have a higher rate of return for us uh, to have it make sense uh, and go into these EM places. And that's exactly what's reflected right. in the EM uh, index that's seen on slide three. I also, I, I would have to say as well, you know, based on the fact that Jerome Powell mentioned on a uh, central bank panel that the level of the dollar is not a priority. If you're a fund manager investing in EM and you're investing in, in that, the dollar going against you will add more premium that they want out of that EM contract. Yes. So that was a really interesting conversation that uh, we listened to last week. It was Jay Powell on a panel with Christine Lagarde, Andrew Bailey, and Carson Augustine, um, who, and they all 
and Jay Powell was basically asked the question of whether the level off the dollar is a priority for the central bank. And mm -hmm. he made it extremely clear that it's not. And why is it not? Because under the law and under the fact that uh, the Federal Reserve answers to Congress, they need to take care of price stability and maximum employment. These are the two mandates. And the dollar is simply not in that equation. So if you, like you said, if you're a fund manager and you now notice, and right. you know right. that the fact that a lot of EM countries hold debt in a currency they don't control, the, the risk of that asset just goes up. And yeah. that's why the demand more return. And that's why uh, EM has traded the way it has this for. And yeah, I mean, it, there are a lot of country level variables involved, but the level of a currency in which a country takes on debt is certainly part of that equation. Of course. Between me and you, I'm sure that Jerome Powell looks at the dollar, but he just can't admit it. <laughs> but we, we'll never, we'll never know, right? We'll never know. We'll but, never get uh, that statement publicly. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to slide four. Let's look at the Brazilian CDS. And again, a CDS is just an insurance policy that investors take out to protect themselves against the bond defaulting. Yes. So I just spoke about the fact that there are a lot of country level differences between these EM places. And it takes a lot of expertise, depending on which country you're looking at. Mm -hmm. But one important fact that we spoke about in the past was how dependent is that country on commodity imports that the population demands. So right. we know that Brazil is a huge producer of grains. They produce oil. They produce all sorts of natural resources. Yep, so yep. That, that, that would theoretically be speaking a really good thing. But despite that fact, the Brazilian five-year CDS is setting new cycle highs. So right. one important thing to consider within the current market context is that there's a lot of contagion involved. One EM country blows up or one EM country, uh, country has covenant issues, uh, things of that sort. It also has a spillover effect regardless of whether your country might be susceptible to those uh, unique issues a different country has. So that's really interesting to, to consider. And that's why you see in certain periods in time and markets that just everything sells off because right. people demand liquidity. They just uh, relocate risk from EM to a different place. And despite those, what a lot of people think of as favorable conditions on the commodity side, there's still the spillover effect. And that's what we see reflected in the CDS. Yeah. And then this is going to be a, a nice segue into slide five. I'm looking at a chart of the Bove spy here. Trading around 98,609, hit a high of around 130,000. Just for perspective, the COVID low was around 60,000. So, you know, it doubled during that, that time period between the low of 2020 and the high of 2021. But in contrast, the Shanghai Stock Composite Index has been rallying since April. So... All of these other, you know, we, we've seen, you know, equity markets around the world kind of come off. But since, like I said, since uh, April-ish, China has been rallying. Why do you think so? Yeah, so what we've seen throughout this coronavirus sort of period 
was that China went into lockdowns first. They came out of lockdowns first, and it was sort yeah. of this reopening hope. They went back into strict lockdowns, uh, zero COVID policy, all that stuff. And right, and so they already went through recession. I right. Think,、uh, that I'm not sure the number exactly, but Goldman Sachs basically referenced that copper demand was in recession because China was on lockdown. So China was in a recession. They then had that combined with the crackdowns on technology companies. They had that combined with a real estate bubble over there. Basically imploding, and then、right. cracking down on a lot of real estate developers. And right now, they're coming out of this period of extremely suppressed conditions on a financial,、uh, from a financial perspective. So, so, so what, I'm going to pause you for a second. So, are you saying maybe, you know, China, you know, saw the numbers rip the bandaid off a little bit quicker on on their economy versus you know the other developed nations, and kind of just got it over with, and say, okay, let's just do this now. Yes, I mean, one interesting factor to consider within that context is that they are now able to buy commodities at cheaper prices. And、right. if you want to think about geopolitical strategy and things of that sort, then that would sort of be a thing that you'd want to do. It's be in the contrary cycle to. The thing that everyone else is in, and then you can take advantage of subdued demand in the West and basically、right. gobble up commodities in the process. <laughs> so, if you want to think about geostrategic、um, sort of strategies and, and things like that, then that's certainly one thing to consider. And right now, what we ultimately see is that economic data in China is picking up. We had PMI come out at fifty-four point five last night versus. A contraction expected, so a number above fifty is an expansion. A number below fifty is a contraction in、okay. terms of manufacturing, and they had an expansion versus a contraction expected, and that's also reflected in in the price of financial securities in China. As you said, that is contrary to most, if not all, other developing countries. I don't. I'll have to, you know, look up some numbers,、yes. but I think, yeah, yeah, and and another another aspect is. Okay, we're heading into the fall, and there'll be a Politburo meeting where President Xi of China is expected to get reappointed for his third presidential <laughs> term. That guy's never leaving office. There's no way. <laughs> yeah, and one of the really、uh, important factors heading into that、uh, Congress is how will China, how will Xi want to present his country, not only to. All his subordinates, but the country at large. And if you want to、uh, again think about strategic sort of thinking, then、right. you'd think that they want to have an economy that's a lot better looking than it was for the last year or so. And、right. that's ultimately going to spill over into demand. The demand we see for commodities. One of the beautiful things about this current conjunction is really we will see the degree to which China demand and things like copper. Really affects the price and whether China will drive commodity demand as much as they have for the last twenty years. So there'll be、right. a message in price, no matter whether price suddenly goes north again and turns around from these really、uh, suppressed levels. I mean, copper's down over five percent today. Uh, yeah, or yeah. if it doesn't pick up, then there'll also be a message of the market telling us, okay, China might not play that same role that they have played 
So either way, we'll get a, a gauge of how China plays into the commodities equation going forward. You said that that was in August, that meeting? Uh, that it's coming up in the fall. I in the fall, I okay. Believe Sorry. It, yeah. I believe it's November, but I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, when well, they're gonna schedule we'll it? We'll find out. We'll we'll update our listeners next week. That's going to be an for exciting sure. event for sure. Um, yeah, that that oh, it's great. So let's uh let's move on to slide six, and this is what we kind of spoke about earlier with regards to Jerome Powell. But the difference is, we have a tight, aggressive labor market, right? A, a post-COVID world. And it, it's similar to models that are pre-COVID that were trained on 40 years of non-inflation regime data. What's going on with Jay Powell, what he's looking at with regards to the labor market? Are there enough jobs out there? Are people actually looking for jobs? And how does this, how do you think this uh, affects his decision-making? And this also ties, ties into slide seven, which is the financial conditions tightening domestically. Yes. So, Going back to the conversation that we had about this central bankers panel we we had last week with Jay Powell, mm -hmm. Christine Lagarde on it. Uh, one of the things that really got clear was, like you said, all these models were trained on 40 years of data in a non-inflationary regime. So naturally, those models are not trained for the type of inflation we have seen. So things were sort of distorted and the central bankers themselves are still trying to understand the post-COVID world that we are now entering. And one really important factor is still to consider the two mandates. We have maximum employment mm -hmm. and we have uh, price stability, which is 2% average inflation. So, so, so you're, saying, you're saying that the Federal Reserve is happy with the employment rate? The Federal Reserve is enabled, the current tightening of financial conditions is enabled by the fact that the labor market right now is extremely tight. Okay. We see that for each unemployed person, there are two job openings. Okay. So while some of that dynamic might be... Um, post-COVID distortion, they, they basically look at that number and they make an assessment that they can be more aggressive from the monetary side because right. they have assured the employment side of the equation. And they, as long as that persists, they are able to tighten financial conditions and potentially doing so into what increasingly seems like an economic slowdown. I mean, we just turn, again, we turn to prices. We look right. at things like copper. We look at things like crude oil even, which is structurally undersupplied. But, <laughs> even in it, but even in that context, we see things really take a hit here. So because they're yeah. tightening as much as they do and what they know as much as we do, they control demand. They can't control supply. And what Jay Powell made clear is that there is a job to be done on durable goods spending. So they are on a mission to impact demand. Right, right. And it, and it seems like based on what we just spoke about a couple of minutes ago, China understood that and they just kind of did it earlier than us. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. I mean, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we, we of course don't have any insight knowledge or anything as no. far as uh, I've been to Shanghai China goes, but just interpreting price i mean price is king and interpreting price we see what's going on and exactly what you said they are contrary to what everyone else is doing 
they take advantage of low commodity prices right now. And they take advantage of the monetary and fiscal policies that are set by the rest uh, of the world. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So our final slide, sad to see it come, but slide eight, front-running peak inflation. Now, this is really interesting to me because I, I think you explained to me earlier, they're not trying to judge where inflation is going to be, but are they, are they trying to find out where the top is? Or what does that mean? Ultimately, what market participants will most likely turn to, as we have sort of seen this, uh, these fears around inflation is, okay, where's going to be the, the peak in inflation? Where's okay. that year-on-year CPI number going to roll over? And people will interpret that as, okay, have we seen not only peak inflation, but peak hawkishness by the Fed? Because if, okay. the, Fed, if the Fed is on a mission to combat inflation and reinstitute price stability, then those numbers are, of course, relevant. But what the market's already telling us based on that five-year, five-year forward uh, inf inflation indicator, which is basically an indicator telling us what the market expects inflation to be in five years, then that number tells us that markets are already front-running that peak inflation. So the market right now is saying we have reached peak inflation. Whether that is going to translate into a different inflation regime in the fullness of time, that we don't know. But what we do know is what the Fed, one of the Fed's goals, which is see a relevant inflation, that's being priced in as we speak. So we then turn to different risk assets in the market and whether we have now just priced in a rise in yields as risk assets have come down and we ultimately transition to a weakening consumer, weaker capital spending and all the other components that drive the economy besides yields. Here's, here's a question for you. Do you think that the U.S. Federal Reserve, as well as the ECB, et cetera, you know, the, uh, the consortium of people that control interest rates, do you think they, that they look at China and they say, hey, are we behind the curveball? Should we try to catch up or should we try to be less hawkish, as you were saying, to try to grow the economy back? How, how much influence do you think? that china you know as we spoke before the, their equity markets are going back up they're kind of back in a you know a growth phase for lack of a better word do you think that they look at that and say we should be on that level or should we not try to be on that level so i mean putting things into context uh i mean of course chinese financial assets have really taken a have have took a hit before so right. the rollover in western uh, financial markets started, whether they look at China and sort of take that as a as a roadmap to a path of lower inflation and sort of crushing the consumer uh, really hard, I'm not sure. I mean, right. I yeah. think that they're ultimately uh, going to return to data dependence. They're going to set how hawkish they are. We spoke about in the past things like debt to GDP levels. The, all these things, of course, flow into the equation. Whether they take China as sort of a model for their own uh, policy course, it's really speculation, in my opinion. I mean, right. or, yeah. are they asking themselves as to how strategic China is in this current phase? Of course, there will be discussions. I mean, this is yeah. the same discussion that you and I are having in terms of speculating 
about what they could, should, would have done uh, <laughs> if they knew all of the things ahead of time. But of course, that's talking about counterfactuals. That's with the benefit right. of hindsight. So it's really more guess that, uh, than an informed opinion, I'd say. If we had a crystal ball, we'd be in a different place, my friend. That's for sure. That is for sure. <laughs> Yaris, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been an excellent, excellent podcast. It was episode five of Macro Corner. The chart book that we described on our podcast is available in the description of the podcast on bluelinefeatures.com, as well as attached to the email sent to clients every Sunday. Not a client? Reach out to Blue Line. I'm sorry. Reach out to info at bluelinefeatures.com for a free trial. This has been great. This has been episode five of Macro Corner presented by Blue Line Futures. I'm your host, Paul Wankmuller. My guest, Giannis Mindal. Always a pleasure having you, my friend. Thank you so much. I can't wait to record <laughs> next week's episode again. And it was a total pleasure to be a guest this week. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to that that fall meeting when China is going to present. And we're going to set the date. We're going to have a little birthday party for that one. How about that? It sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right, buddy. Good talking to you. All right. Thanks so much, Paul. All opinions expressed by the program participants are their own and do not reflect those of Blue Line Futures LLC or their affiliates. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition.